You are listening to an American Theater podcast. American Theater is a publication of Theater Communications Group. www.americantheater.org. American Theater's podcasts are kindly supported by theater acoustics and digital design consultancy Charcoal Blue. Hi, I'm Deep Trance, senior editor at American Theater Magazine. I'm Jose Solis, a freelance theater critic, and we're your token theater friends—people who love theater so much that we will even go to the theater when it's raining, and right before we're going to go watch Game of Thrones on Sunday night on the same day. Because you know, you know, the best thing to watch before 90 minutes of dragons burning shit down. Is a play about a, a woman in Texas. <laughs> What did you do for Mother's Day, Jose? I watched poor Cersei meet her fate. Maybe that's something we could rant about. Like what what playwrights we would like to, we would have liked to see take on Game of Thrones. Ah,、uh, theater, unlike Game of Thrones, is making us happy these days. Always, and this week we're going to talk about three shows that we've seen recently. We're going to start with Caroline or Change at Apex. That's Astoria Performing Arts Center. Then we're going to do Paul Swan is Dead and Gone by the Civilians, currently running a torn page, and we are going to wrap with Tootsie running on Broadway. Okay, our first show is Caroline or Change. That's Tony Kushner and Janine Tesori's classic musical that was first mounted in two thousand and three. I think it was four, because it was the year of Wicked and Avenue Q. Wait, I think that was two thousand six. Then no, two thousand four. Yes. See. Yes. I know my ever, Tony stuff. If if you ever go on Jeopardy and there's. A musical theater category, you're gonna crush it. I hope so. Or if you're in,、uh, who wants to be a millionaire? Is that still a thing? I think so. All right. And if you get like a Broadway question, or a Tony question, or any sort of awards trivia question, when you phone a friend, phone me. <laughs> phone your、it. token theater friend. <laughs> In this musical, Caroline is a black maid working for a white family in 1963, and in the background, John F. Kennedy gets shot. Confederate monuments get, you know, pulled down, and Caroline notices all of these things, and it's about her trying to. Stay employed and stay sane in 1963. I had actually never seen this musical before, and so it was a really interesting experience seeing it done at the Astoria Performing Arts Center, which is a small off-off Broadway venue. And the thing is, it's one of those musicals that you don't need a big cast or a big orchestra to do it really well. And I actually think. Doing it on this smaller scale, like I can't imagine, in, I can't imagine it being done any larger than that because it's just a, it's, it's an intimate story. It's basically it basically takes place. Fifty percent of scenes take pla- take place in the laundry room,、mm-hmm. and I think this musical like lives or dies based on the actor who plays Caroline because she's a very static character. She actually doesn't do much. Things just happen around her, and it takes like a really An actor who can find like some sense of interiority, some sense of to make you sympathize with being a person who really who had who is powerless. It requires someone who can who, who, who can see all that on her face on her body, but she actually doesn't do much physically.、Mm-hmm. And so Ladonna Burns, like she just oh my god, her voice. She she was just so powerful, and it, it was just so frustrating to me as a viewer to know that she's she's capable of so much, but she can't do it. Yeah,、and、I think, and I think that's the point of the play. It totally is, but also besides her voice, which is incredible, her face.、Mm-hmm. She does so much just with her facial expressions, and you said that nothing really happens to her, which is true. But at the same time, she's. Carrying so much weight, you know,、mm-hmm. her son is in Vietnam. She lost her husband. We learned that her mom also、uh, died at some point, and that's something that she has in common with the little boy that she's,、uh, you know, helping raise in a way by、yeah. teaching him about how to keep track of his freaking money. And and she does all of this, you know. It's so strange because it's a part 
that despite the singing is very quiet, which is why every time she sings, it just feels like something. Uh, it made me think a lot about church. Mm-hmm. It has a very spiritual connotations. The way that she uses her voice to make us see what Caroline is seeing and feeling, and the score is absolutely beautiful, obviously. And I mean, Tanya Pinkins does an incredible job in the cast recording. But I think Ladonna Burns is, you know, if someone's remounting this later off Broadway or on Broadway at some point, give her a call. I feel this musical is called Carolina Change, but I could. I feel like the subtitle is also emotional labor in two hours because because I love what LaDonna does, which is like, yes, she has a big voice, but there's also a vulnerability. There's also knowledge of like a lot of sad stuff has happened to her and she shoulders so much, but she has to, but the world has assumed that she's strong and they don't see anything beyond that. And so whenever she sings, I feel like she's not singing to anyone in the cast she's singing to us the audience the things that she can't convey to the rest of the world yeah and even in a way like she's singing to her ancestors she's singing, mm-hmm. she's singing to the moon she's singing to the people who are going to come next like she's raising we don't get to see her kids very often mm-hmm. uh, except for emmy her her oldest daughter but uh she's you know like the I couldn't help but think about all the things that we don't get to see about Caroline. Like we only see her stuck in a laundry room, then smoking a cigarette and listening to the radio as her only pleasure. And it's just such a heartbreaking um, show, which is why I was so exhilarated that the production that APAC put on is so freaking good. Mm -hmm. Though I feel like... Is okay. I know this is a script problem, but I don't know if they solve it. Which is uh, what? What? what, what are, like the ending of Carolina Change, and the thing is, I, I feel like I can spoil it because it's a fifteen-year-old musical. So the ending of Carolina Change, like it, the ending is given to her daughter, and and we learn that her daughter is going to become an act is is an activist. Like she pulled down a Confederate monument, and it, it comes as a surprise to the audience. And I. F- feel like this musical it it prioritizes too much of the relationship between Caroline and that the little white boy that she has to take care of and not so much the relationship between Caroline and her own children but which I know is like kind musical. of like in real life yeah but at the same time if we're going to be emotionally invested in her daughter enough for, for her daughter to be given and a closing number that means like her daughter needed to be a more a more prominent presence and i feel like she wasn't and her and the white boy took up most of it but that's something you have to take up to tony kushner i know uh, yeah i know and i don't know if they, if they solve it i don't want to rag criticize like any of the younger actors but at the same time i would have loved like a like a more powerful presence for the role of the daughter. But that's the point, precisely. Like, Anika Noni Rose. Have you listened to the cast recording? No. Okay. Uh, yeah. In, the- in this production, the daughter wasn't as powerful of a presence as, like, the little boy. But that's the point of the book. Like, that's Yeah, the, uh- but, but I think, like, a good actor can bring more to it. Okay, then just yeah. called her a bad actor. No, and I don't know. She wasn't bad. I just think like she wasn't pow- like her voice wasn't powerful enough to to hold that material. Mm, that's so interesting because I thought she was really spectacular. The daughter. I actually could barely hear her towards the end. Oh yeah, I don't know. Maybe you had a bad. Uh, maybe she had a bad bad like day the day you yeah. saw it. But uh, she was wonderful. So yeah. Sheree is Emmy and Sabatino is Noah. But I did love the set though. Yeah. I, yeah, I didn't have a problem. I love this production, and APEC yeah. does. It, this was your first time at APEC, and you had miss. You know, you weren't sure exactly what you were going in for, and I think APEC does some of the best musicals in the city. I've seen so many of their shows there. Like, were you surprised after your first visit? I I really enjoyed it, and I was surprised by the quality of it, and I'm so happy that there is a production company in New York off off Broadway that's doing like these big ambitious shows because a, a musicals are hard and you need a lot of people to you you need a big cast you need a live orchestra there's a, there's a live orchestra 
and and you just need like solid production value. So I was I'm very happy to know that that's something that does exist in Queens, right in your backyard. Exactly. Yeah. But if you're if you really want a well done production of Caroline or Change, then it's running until. May 25th at the Astoria Performing Arts Center, and tickets are $20 to $25, which is a steal for something of this quality. Mm-hmm. Next up, we went to Torn Page to see Paul Swan is Dead and Gone by Claire Keichel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a production by the civilians. And it tells us, it takes us into the studio of Paul Swan, a real life dancer, painter, and sculptor, and all together, like, you know, performer, artist, etc., who lived, he was a real-life person, and during the 30s and all the way through the 60s, he would hold this glamorous salons in his house. His apartment was on top of Carnegie Hall. Mm -hmm. So what they're doing in this production is that they're, you know, pretending we're on top of Carnegie Hall. And we get to see Paul in his later age. He's played by Tony Torn. Mm. And he puts on a show like, you know, he comes out of a freaking sarcophagus and he does poetry, song. And the idea of the show is to see, you know, not only to remember someone that we, for starters, never had heard about. Had you heard about Paul Swan before? No, have you? Never. So not only to rescue this queer icon, but to make us think precisely about that, about all the artists and all the talented people who are lost to history and also to wonder you know in Paul's case for instance what did being gay mean for his career because we also see him as an older man dreaming and remembering the younger men that he would fall in love with and the men that he that became his protégés and left him eventually uh, I really liked the performance by Tony Torn he was mm-hmm. creepy and majestic and Intimidating, but also so moving as yeah. as Paul. Apparently, according to what I read about Paul Swan coming in, like he he was he's like a camp icon, and and when you're playing someone who's known for theatrics and and like broad comedy and parody, like it's easy to go broad with that role. But I think Tony really like gave us like the vulnerability within this person, especially as they're trying to like keep what used to make them famous but like you're old now and so you can't do what you did when you were in your 20s we're all obsessed with being young and we're all obsessed with like staying young and there's never and there's no like playbook of like how to age gracefully and and how to deal with the fact that if you are well known when you were young like how what happens when you get old and don't have the same level of fame anymore it was built as like a campy evening but i think it is more like a like a tragic look at someone who you know gave up a lot of things to be famous and then at the end of his life like there wasn't really much left it is so sad because when, so when we first enter there's a huge did you see that huge portrait of the real life paul when he was younger mm. in like a loincloth basically and he was hot he was hot it, it kind of made me think of like a male version of sunset boulevard yeah i was thinking norma desmond yeah. yeah where this man you know beauty fades and now what does he have left and it it's really wonderful what the what the you know what the artists have done with this production because it goes from it feels in many ways like a haunted house like we're going to see you know this man that suddenly manifests and then he's almost dragged out Mm -hmm. at the end obviously because the show has to end at some point and it's only 90 minutes but also because that's what happened to him like his life just ended and I mean, I, I don't know what happened to Paul Swan no. after he was... Now I wish I could have known him. Yeah. Well, you can ask Claire, the playwright Claire Ketchell, about it because he's her great-great-uncle, so maybe she knows what happened to him. But even in the program, did you read the program and her notes in the program where it said that she didn't even know him that well and <laughs> part of the play was she wanted to figure out who her uncle was, mm. which is so moving. I wonder, like, it would have been, like, so cool, like, to maybe, like, get a time machine and go back and go to one of his salons, because I was imagining, like, who Mm -hmm. were his guests? He probably had, like, all the famous theater 
artists of the time. I mean, I can imagine like Truman Capote and Tennessee Williams and like Dorothy Parker at one of his salons while he's just like doing a, you know, like a, a poetry reading dressed as Cleopatra or something crazy like that. <laughs> Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. Like, is there an equivalent of that? Like, if you are a theater artist and you're listening to this and you have secret salon, can I be invited, please? Yeah, I'll, and I'll if, bring some champagne. Yeah. And we'll dress up. <laughs> I really like the costuming too. It was so great. It it was very much and it was very much like you know like late later day Elizabeth Taylor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I imagine it. Like, I imagine like that'll be me when I get old. I'll just like I'll just like you know lounge around in in like a caftan and a turban while like a young man plays on the piano in the background. That sounds like the way to go. I know. Uh, did you think? There were some parts where I, I, it was a little bit unclear whether it was a fantasy or like an actual thing that happened in real life. What specifically, this salon or what? No, like him having children. Like him, like Paul Swan having ch- like estranged children. I mean, I'm assuming that he had a child because it, it's in it, but I don't know. I yeah, mean- and, and there's just like some odd experimental theater choices that really didn't weren't clear to me like what they were trying to do and and then like his back and forth with his piano player I didn't quite understand like the conflict like there was an old piano player and then he left and now that or like was pushed out now there's a new piano player and he and he there are issues there with intimacy I wasn't quite sure. What was happening? Yeah. Oh. I mean, it was clear to me. Um, yeah, it was, I didn't have that problem. Really? Yeah. Right. I mean, ev- everyone was both real, but also like imaginary. Yeah. People were ghosts. Yeah. And it was Paul Swan was the only character, even though he shows up, you know, like... Uh, I guess like uh, 15 minutes into the actual performance. Yeah. He's the only character who's real, like, you know, like, uh, so to speak. And everyone around him is either, you know, both present because we're seeing them, but also they're just living in his imagination. And like the thing he has with the piano player who, by the way, is played by, uh, uh Robert Johansson of nature theater of Oklahoma, mm-hmm. who I really, really love. Um, so the relationship we see with him is very similar to the Norma Desmond relationship with her butler, but also with Joe Gillis, where he's, you know, he goes from being like the object of his affection to then being like a ghost to then being his enemy. And this is a man who was, you know, losing his mind in a way. So the, um, if you're expecting, you know, very clear, relationships like that it's this is not that kind of play it's kind of like a dream memory haunted house musical yeah thing hybrid yes yeah paul swan is dead and gone by claire ketchell playing until may 19th and tickets are 35 to 45 dollars and so let me go and let us know if you had a nice campy time (laughs) uh the final show that we're going to talk about is Tootsie, the new musical currently playing on Broadway with music and lyrics by David Yazbek and book by Robert Horn. And it's based on the 1981 movie starring Dennis Hoffman. In this version of Tootsie, an out-of-work actor played by Santino Fontana decides to dress up as a woman because he believes it will get him more work and then it does and then he becomes the star of his own Broadway musical. Did you laugh? Did yes. Did you find it funny? Yes. Yes. I was very entertained. And this was a musical where the concept, like the movie's a really, really good movie. And the same problems that the movie had in 1982 when it came out are the problems that the musical has right now, which is, you know, like, it's just plain wrong, right? Yes. But knowing that in advance, if I had gone to that theater and been like, angry at the show for knowing what the show was already, I would have been absolutely miserable. So this is a show where I turn my switch off and I turn my brain off in the same way that 
I did for Kiss Me Kate. And I was like, I'm going to see this for what it is. And problems aside, it's a very funny musical. Like yeah. the book is very funny. It's, I think one of the, it's, it's the second musical that I enjoyed the most on Broadway this season. Dang, the yeah. second one. That's, this is one of those. This is kind of like when I saw Mean Girls the musical, where the book is better than the music, the score. Because I don't. This, the music is very perfunctory. It gets it gets you from A to B about like where these characters are, but none of it's hummable and none of it's memorable. Like, and David Yazbek composed the band's visit, so he knows how to compose a song that will stick in your head. This was not one of those times. I like the music. I remember, really? yeah, I, I know how to sing, but I, if you know, they're they're in my brain. Like, in fact, that was one of the reasons why I was surprised at my reaction to the musical because I. You know, I don't remember most of the music in any musicals this season. But this really? one, I went home and I had the songs like going, 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 going in my head. Do you just like the mid-century like kind of sound? Is that why it gets stuck in your head easier than like the more contemporary stuff? I don't know. The song that uh, David Yasbeck wrote for the character of Sandy, who's uh, Michael's former girlfriend, I think, and now best friend. Yes, uh, played by Sarah Stiles. Who is absolutely fantastic in this. Who does, who, like most of the women in the show, does more than what she's given. Mm-hmm. So her song, What's Gonna Happen, which is technically like, you know, Yasbeck borrowing from his own music for women on the verge of a nervous breakdown, mm-hmm. which maybe that's why it was so memorable. But uh, it's just like this, like, pit-patty, like, stream of consciousness number. And yeah. Even like when I'm doing stuff in the morning, I'm trying to remember, I'll like remember it in that melody. So I actually really liked the score for, for Tootsie. Right. Uh, you want to talk about the gender politics? No. Okay, I mean, my so- brain got disconnected and I was like, I'm going to be so angry at the show if I just look at it. Closely, the thing yeah. is, though, I want to talk about it because they cared enough to address it. Like there's a there is this line that Santino says at the end of the show where he you know he he, he has his like come to God moment and he realizes women are women work so hard and he he says something about how you know like his his old his female alter ego Dorothy Michaels has to is like if she raises her voice she's seen as a bitch has to work twice as hard all of those things and a thing the problem is we never see it and it's we don't see. We don't see people criticizing her for being a woman. We see people like embracing her and we see people like like saying she's like the best thing ever and actually taking her opinion seriously, which is not actually a thing that happens in real life. And I feel like this is one of those times where a bunch of men, because it was all men who created this musical, think they know what feminism is and think that if they just put put enough woke terminology into into an old piece of work, it will make it modern. Yeah, but that's and the same. And it doesn't. It's the same with the movie. It's all men writing about it. Exactly. Yeah. But they cared enough to try to update it. I mean, they tried. And they just didn't do it well enough because they didn't hire any women to do it. Right. They tried and they think that's enough. And yeah. It's, it's I mean, not. It, no, it's, it's not. not enough, but it's an embodiment of what. I mean, what were you expecting is my question. Like, were you expecting it? No, I wasn't expecting it. The thing is, like, I know they tried. And the thing is, like, I think us, we as critics, like, if we know they're trying to do something, the question is, like, did they succeed? And for me, they didn't. And they, and, and I kind of, I'm on two minds about this. I feel like they, they tried and failed on trying to make it more feminist and trying to, like, do something where women actually have, where, women actually have agency and they don't because none of the female characters really have a personality. But I feel at the same time though, I think the best audience for this musical actually are that is that demographic, like old men who don't understand what it is like to be a woman because I think what the musical is trying to say is like if a man walked in in a woman's shoes like he would understand just the systemic issues that she faces every day I mean granted they didn't really illustrate said systemic issues but I guess they tried and 
if men watch this musical and come out learning something uh, and ask questions uh, to ask the women their lives questions, I guess it just if it, I guess it works. But that older demographic that you're talking about also loves the movie and they did they learn anything from the movie no they didn't and you're asking too much you're expecting too much of people i don't think people are going to go to this musical and learn anything and the only way to make a feminist tootsie would be not to make tootsie and instead mount a show by women about women yeah i mean yeah there's yeah there's no way to fix the problems with with this show So why do they do it? Girl, because people love going to see movie ver- I mean, musical versions of movies. You- you've seen Broadway. That's what Broadway is. I know. And it's like... <laughs> and I-, I truly think because... And I want to rag on Ben Brantley and Jesse Green because I respect them as people. But like in their dialogue in the New York Times, they said that... I think Ben said that Tootsie should win Best Musical. And I'm thinking, oh my God, you are the demographic for this musical. Because the rest of us are just like, what is this? It, so it seems like he learned something about how hard it is to be a woman. I don't even think that's the point of it. I think people just like, it's the same with Pretty Women. It's not a good musical. And I mean, that, I think that's a good example. That's a good thing to compare it to. Because mm-hmm. Tootsie, besides both of them having you know gender dynamic problems, Pretty Women the musical is not a good musical. Like the songs are not good. The book is flat and it's just trying to recreate the movie. And in Tootsie beyond the problems, they wrote the entire thing though. Yeah. For, for, so for Tootsie beyond the problems that deeps mentioning, which I agree are huge problems. It's, you know, it's again, it's, we're seeing Broadway put, Great writing, good music, and really, really fantastic acting. Because Santino, for instance, is brilliant. He carries it. Yeah. So it's putting all this really fabulous elements at the service of a regressive story. But that's what commercial theater is. And I'm, I'm always, I'm always surprised that you're surprised. Does it have to be? The, I think I'm always surprised because I avoid it for this reason. And every time I go thinking, maybe this time, you know, I'll be lucky. Like Liza Minnelli. Uh, no, I, it, uh, no. Sorry, no. Sally. You no. won't be lucky this time. It's, no, life is, life is a cabaret and everything's bullshit. It is. But yeah. tomorrow belongs to the white men. <laughs> Anyway, the multi-Tony nominated Tootsie runs through... Oh, it's open run. Overrun. It's an open run and tickets are... 79 to $200. Okay, wow. Expensive show. But anyway, that's not surprising either. So next, we went to the Episcopal Actors Guild to talk to Alice Ripley about her play, The Pink Unicorn, in which she plays the Texan mom dealing with the fact that her daughter comes out as gender non-conforming or gender queer and it's a one woman show it's an incredible monologue by alice and an incredible performance and uh if you don't know alice ripley starred in the original cast of sideshow on broadway as well as the pulitzer winning next to normal so she knows something about playing complex women who are sometimes mothers and she had some really interesting things to say about her process and about theater in general so let's go listen to that and now a word from our sponsor what makes the perfect performance venue comfortable seats great views of the stage a line for the toilet that doesn't take you out onto the sidewalk i've encountered that way too many times and that is why i no longer drink before shows But in truth, every venue is unique, from a college studio space to a Broadway house, from a presentation space to an arena. Undertaking their design or renovation can be a challenge, but Charcoal Blue, that's all they do. Charcoal Blue are the leading theater, acoustic, and digital design consultancy that have designed, renovated, tweaked, and polished more than 200 performance and presentation spaces, both here and abroad, over the past 15 years. From a six-person mobile podcasting studio to the new Performing Arts Center at the World Trade Center, their team of experienced musical and theater professionals innovate at any scale and any budget. 
Huh, I wonder if I can get them to design a studio for Token Theater Friends. With studios in New York, Chicago, the UK, and Australia, speak to them today about how they can help you realize your ambitions for your space. Visit them at charcoalblue.com or follow them at Twitter or Instagram at charcoalblue. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, can you tell our viewers what the pink unicorn is? Well, the play, the pink unicorn, is a, is a one-woman play, and it's 48 pages of nonstop talking. And the character is Trisha Lee. I play her. Uh, but the pink unicorn is also a character in the play that doesn't appear in its imaginary. It's like a guiding light. Mm-hmm. And pink unicorn is, is also the... It's what happens when you join hearts. That's what the play would call it. It would, it would say, listen to that. That's the sound of a pink unicorn. Mm-hmm. And it's also about a woman whose child like, comes out as gender nonconforming and the reverberations of that throughout a, a small Texas town. And so what kind of research did you do on like the gender spectrum because I because the the mother in the story also does the same research and is very surprised about all these new terms that she's learning. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of what's in the play I already knew uh, as far as facts go, but the the characters, you know, because it all comes out of these characters. And I'll be honest and say it was not easy to get to like some of these characters. Not <laughs> Trisha, but I mean, some of the people I describe, I wrestled with that. Because I have to speak for them. Mm-hmm. And some mm-hmm. of the things they say, Alice goes, wait a minute. <laughs> I got something to say about that. But I have to put Alice in a little closet while I do this. Um, Patricia is, is somebody who is changing. And you get to see her change from somebody who is just kind of repeating the same old pattern, which mm-hmm. all of us would do. But it just so happens to be about something that's soul-oriented. And... I think it's because of the timing you know, that's now. Mm-hmm. I don't think it would have been 50 years ago. It wasn't a, there wasn't like an infrastructure of love to do that back then. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, this is kind of embarrassing to say in front of you, but I'm a huge Alice Ripley nerd. <laughs> awesome! <laughs> and something that I've been really fascinated by uh, about your career is that, you know, in Sideshow, you were, you know, stuck to... Your co-star, Stuck right? with you. Yes, I am. <laughs> Stuck with you. That was a song that was cut. But somehow you picked up on that through osmosis. Right. <laughs> and then in so many of the parts that I've seen you play, uh, especially in recent years, I mean, obviously things like Next to Normal and Pink Unicorn, and even to a degree American Psycho, it's like your characters are always isolated. And I mean, in this one, you we can't see your co-stars. And American Psycho, there was like that weird dynamic where you played the mom and also the other character. And you always came and, you know, like out of nowhere, so to speak. <laughs> and that was the same dynamic in, in Next to Normal in a way. And I wonder, you know, what that's, but what is, uh, what's that like? You know, like going from Sideshow where you were like a unit with your co-star to then playing all these characters that are like islands in a way. Well, it's different. Definitely, and you know, I'm on the other. Ha- I'm on the other side of the hill. I mean, I'm, I'm not embarrassed by my age. I feel like I should be proud of it because mm-hmm. I sur- I made it. You know what? There were plenty of times that I was at the bottom, so it's great to just let that shine and be proud of it. You know, I mean, of course, we all wish that we had this and that and this and that from days gone by, but. I have things now that I didn't have before. So I guess what I'm saying is there's a wisdom that comes with when you when you spend your life just doing this. I mean, I've manicured my whole life to do this. I, it wasn't something I thought, oh, maybe I'll do this too. <laughs> didn't do anything else, you know. And that's why I can spend five days in a row, day and night, without anybody who's depending on me or expecting me to pick them up somewhere. Just... Immerse, you know, you do kind of become a little, a little, little crazy. <laughs> it's like, I can't look at this anymore. Um, but that's what that takes to do something on your own. Um, in this way, American Psycho was the first Broadway show I did after I won my Tony. And I noticed a difference just in the, the just the, the climate was just a little bit more, just a little bit more, you know, 
just be more careful, maybe more respectful, but I kind of want people to invade me. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And crash on the floor. So I'll kick you out if you get in my way. Don't worry. So, uh, you know, I was, I'm hoping, I'm, I am hoping to get cast in another Broadway show because I miss that company miss being in a company. There's nothing like that. And I write my own music and I, you know, I do all kinds of stuff on my own because we have to, otherwise, you know what I mean? You got to keep that fire going. Mm-hmm. But my first love is, is being in a company in a show. Tra- transitioning to being a younger actress to being a, an older actress. And like, I've always heard the criticisms. There's fewer roles as you age for, uh, for women in this industry. And so how have you managed to like, stay the course and pick roles that are not just a mom, but actually a mom with agency or, or a woman who is, doesn't depend on men to do things for her. Well, that, you know, I have to say that it, it, I'd like to say that maybe I thought of it. It was my idea, but no, it actually, the work comes to you. People like Liz, the producer of the pink unicorn, Liz Fleming, you know, she like handpicked it for me and said, what do you think about this? And I mean, of course, uh, how could you say no to that? It's kind of like, well, this is destiny. Tom Kitt came right out and told me he wrote that show for me next to normal. And so I didn't say, will you write me a show? I didn't even know him. So of course you're going to jump on it as soon as possible. And it just happened to be something that won the Pulitzer Prize. But, um, not yeah, so yet. the work comes to you, and you draw the work. I, I mean, I do have choices. Yeah, mm-hmm. I say no to things, but it's obvious what, what you want to say yes to. Mm-hmm. And right now, I'm really, I I've just was like really jonesing to do a play, even though I miss singing, you know. I, I want to still sing every day, but, uh, uh, you know, I do a lot of talking, so I have to kind of take some vocal rest, but... Um, I wanted to do a play, and um, and then I'm doing a one-woman musical this summer in Australia, Tell Me on a Sunday, which I did at the Kennedy Center, and I got a Helen Hayes nomination for it. I kind of forgot about it because it was only a few weeks, ran for a few months or whatever. So that's going to be, it's kind of back-to-back with this. It's kind of interesting, mm. don't you think, because that's completely sung through. Wow. It's another one of those oh. things where you go on stage, you go, you go on stage with your suitcase, and you go, uh, I'm the only one who's going to make this thing happen. Really? <laughs> like this is it. Just me. I'm, I'm responsible for all the tears, all the laughter, all the, mm-hmm. and you just take it on and just pretend that you're the character and it works. Cause a piece like pink unicorn or Andrew Lloyd Webber and Don Black's tell me on a Sunday. It's just, the piece is so good. You can really just sit back on it. And just, it's like a throne. You just kind of sit on it. <laughs> it, it holds you up. Mm-hmm. You're not going to fall p- these pieces, you know? So I guess maybe that's where I might, pick and choose the piece itself. Like I have the luxury now, because when you first start out, you say yes to everything because you have to, and you want to. Um, but as you get older, it's important to remember, you know, to give yourself raises and to say, learn how to say no for the right reason. But it's really that you're saying yes to something else. Mm-hmm. And then you have to live with it. You just have to say, but you really want to make the action is that you're saying yes, as opposed to no, no, no. And Okay. Yes, and then you guys fall away. And so you say yes to something because it, it's just so obvious, right? I mean, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. You're creative, right? You probably get, like, ideas for stories that are going, eh. And the one, right? Mm-hmm. The one that's like, I want to cover that one. Yeah. Trisha's daughter is named Jolene, and I kept crossing my fingers that you would sing Jolene at some point, and it never Jolene, <laughs> Jolene, 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 oh, please don't take him even though you can. I wish I could sing like Dolly Parton. And I don't know what the words are. It's like, your eyes are this, and you're something, and you've got boobs like this, and you look real great in boots, and I don't know the words to do. So they do, and they don't know the words. That's jo- Dolly Parton, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I know. I'm thinking maybe... This piece might someday, you know, maybe someday when we do it on Broadway or whatever, we'll, or if there's a movie, we'll, we'll add some music that mm-hmm. I won't necessarily sing, but it'll be there with the piece. Maybe some, something funny mm-hmm. or something soulful. Maybe well, an anthem or a hymn. Or, <gasps> I said soulful, and then the bells started ringing. <laughs> it was like magic. <laughs> but thank you for singing. That was so beautiful. You made my ear. But what I want to We're going to keep that clip forever. <laughs> What I wanted to, to ask you was, I was sitting right there, and I was so fascinated because there's music in Trisha, and I felt you were singing the entire time. And I wonder, uh, you, you've spoken before about how when you went to when you were in college, you started doing like the classic plays, right, like the Chekhov's and the Shakespeare's and all mm-hmm. that, and then musicals like were something that you just happened to 
No, they found you. And you they kind of pulled me in. Yeah, it, but it's just because I didn't. I didn't have the the benefit of having musical theater in my life when I was growing up. I, you know, I had my parents' albums, their LPs, some of the soundtracks from you know Music Man or whatever. But that was it because the town I lived in, we didn't get, we didn't really have any theater. Mm-hmm. I didn't know any actors, but I just knew I wanted to sing. And then that meant, you know, well, all well, these other things you do too when you start singing, and then you put yourself <laughs> in a musical. Yeah, and and. Turns out that musical theater is one of the most challenging things that I've ever done or tried to do outside of ballet or sight reading Cantonese in the <laughs> recording studio, which I did one time. Well, for me as the audience, so, uh, someone asked me like what I love about theater, and for me, it's it's the as a person who has trouble focusing, like it forces me to focus and turn everything off and just yeah. sit there. Yes, I, that's what it is, and and so. You know, I mean, everybody makes this happen. I'm just the one doing it, but, like, you know, there's all these other people that are helping to make this happen. But, like, that's how you do something like that. You're kind of, like, that's how I remember. You asked me how I got, you know, got all the material, and I'm just now finishing chewing it up and digesting it and kind of going, oh, hmm, how can I integrate this? Is that, you know, you just it is a little bit, it's a little bit awkward. It's a little... Mm-hmm. You, know, you feel overwhelmed, and that's mm-hmm. normal. Like, you know, if you're a creative artist and... You slightly feel overwhelmed by the material. Just know that that's a, not a problem. You know, yeah. it's it's kind of like when you first hear your own voice back in the day in the seventies, when I was a teenager, and we got the the Brady Bunch recorder, tape recorder, the cassette. You get, you don't know what I'm talking about, but you have to press record and play at the same time. That's when the first time I ever heard my voice, my voice talking back to me. It's almost like I, you hate it at first, you know, because that's that's kind of art. Your voice, mm-hmm. and when you're hearing it for the first time and you've never seen it from that perspective, it's almost, you don't like it. And that's kind of how art is sometimes. Not always. But sometimes the best art is the art that makes you go, what's happening over there? <laughs> <laughs> Look at it, keep looking at it. Keep. And then I think maybe a body of work is important because then you can look at what everything that this person has done and gone, or this team, and go, wow, okay, well, I can see, you know, why they like it mm-hmm. now because you see the whole mm-hmm. body of work but getting getting in a theater and, and making yourself focus and feeling open and relaxed and you know it's just like a sacred sacred thing and we do it together you, the mm-hmm. audience I mean, you guys are you do all kinds of things all kinds of hats but you're, you were in my audience and so you know someday I might be in your audience when I read what you wrote or whatever you know like characters like Trisha are characters that we hear about in the news, especially like people, you know, in New York, cities like New York, for instance, and we hear about them in the news, and we often tend to be very judgmental about Mm -hmm. them in the same way that, you know, people in red states are very judgmental about people in, like, the liberal, like, bubbles and all that stuff, right? And Mm -hmm. I wonder, what did you learn, even though this is a very cliche question, but what did you learn about what's going on in America today by immersing yourself in someone like like Trish, you know, I you asked earlier about like the character, how I mm-hmm. researched the character because she is really different from me. I know a lot of people from Texas. I know people who tell these stories. You know, my co-star in um, Next to Normal, Bobby Spencer. He goes, "I'm going to tell a story, and it's going to take a while because I love to tell stories." The reason I brought that up is because maybe think of the TED, there's a TED talk Mm -hmm. and I don't know the lady's name, but you know, she stands up and she, she does the pink, it's not the play, but she tells the real life story of her story, which is, it's, you know, there she is. There's Trisha Lee. You know, I don't think that that woman's from Texas or anything, but it, that's even more to the point that it's, it's something that everybody's experiencing right now. And that just made me feel like if there's if there's one lady who's doing that for the TED Talk, there's a hundred thousand of them that are going through this, and and it's just starting to crack. So there's going to be a lot of people who still like I would, who still are going to wait to see what what happens. Do you know what I mean? Um, and this play is what's happening, and. It's the kind of thing that if, if people can just get themselves here, um, it's going to transform them. And, and the thing is, I, I'm not just saying this, I really mean it, um, Next to Normal had this, had this ex- 
thing that happened when we were in the beginning stages like this in the workshops, I mean, it was, it was a different show back then. But still, there would be like 15 people in, you know, the Ripley Greer reading room or whatever, were pre presenting it. In the beginning, it's everybody's just like, their phone watches, you know, they're hungry. They want to, what's this going to be like? By the end, I had the privilege of watching audience after audience, and that just never stopped. It's still going on. Mm -hmm. From the very beginning, they they like they were transformed. Like you can see, I can see it on them. They're transformed by this, and that's what this piece is doing already with the audiences. I I mean, no matter how they respond, I can see it because they're right there, and it's it's incredible to me to see something that's at the beginning because having gone through the whole trajectory of next to normal, I have a feeling like this has the same kind of impact potential which makes me feel really excited and happy because mm -hmm. personally I feel like let's go people. Let's go. This is how you do it. Like this is how you deal with it. When your kid says something like this to you, because Trisha has all the challenges, like she, it's not easy, you know, but she, what I tr decide to do is Trisha, there's a line where I go this or my daughter, there's no contest. I mean, how could there be? And yet, Trisha's standing up in church and speaking up when she doesn't like what the pastor's saying. It's like the most radical thing that anybody in that town has ever done. And it's just standing up and walking out. So mm -hmm. I think that's fascinating because, you know, it, it's like there's got to be at least somebody in there that agrees with me, and there is. Somebody follows me out. You know, and then she knows this whole underground railroad people oh, that are just waiting for a leader to organize. You know, I didn't know it was going to be me, Trisha says. But that's what I want people to know that they can do. It's like when I talk to my students in a master class and I say, it's life or death right now, you guys. Like, I'm, you know, you can edit this out if you want, but our president has decided that what we do has no value. I'm here to tell you, <laughs> he's wrong. He's just wrong because I can show you the track record of how I've supported myself in New York City. I mean, come on. So I want to I want to set fire to them so that they get excited, you know, and that and they can see that I'm like me, that they're, they're like me, and that they can do what I did. And so I want to set fire to the audience so they can see that they're like they can do what Trisha what Trisha does, which mm -hmm. is choose to love. Mm -hmm. That's all. It's that love is love is love that Lin Manuel said, mm -hmm. but like an hour and a half version of it. And we both saw it on. Mother's Day I saw weekend. You. I saw yeah. you sitting right there. You had a tear <laughs> <Yeah>. right here. <laughs> I did. You had a tear sitting on your cheek, and it just cracked my heart in the best way. Oh. Yeah, it was beautiful. I wanted to tell that. Like, uh, it had a little bit of it. reflection on it. <laughs> yeah. A little, little window of reflection on your teardrop. <laughs> How much do you watch the audience? <laughs> well, you were right there. Yeah. I mean, I well, it was uh -huh. at the end. It was a couple of times toward the end. I look at the audience, you know, when I'm talking about, well, we can't mm -hmm. just end this. Yeah, but, but it's kind of easy to see you. Don't be embarrassed, mm -hmm. though. That's good. Mm -hmm. I love seeing your faces because I love seeing how it's transformed. Yeah, I felt seen. But what I really wanted to tell you, and again, I have to apologize again for my fan moment. But since we saw this on Mother's Day uh, weekend, and as the son, you know, as the gay son of a mom who we've been, you know, we've had a quite contentious relationship after I came out and... Um, After seeing your work on Saturday, I texted my mom immediately to tell her that I loved her. And I haven't done that in a very long time, so so thank you. That's such a gift that you just gave me by telling me that. Thank you so much. And, and that you... Oh, wow, that's incredible. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Because, look, I don't want to get too what, whatever, woo-woo, but like all we have is the fabric of right now. So, like... I mean, you didn't let your mom go through the day without hearing from you because I guarantee you, no matter what she's ever said or made you feel, she she loves you. That's all. She loves you. And, you know, sometimes it's afraid. It's it's easier to just go. But there's the thing I've learned, and I've gone through a lot of loss the past decade, intense. But, um, you know, your heart's either open or it's closed. Mm-hmm. There's nothing in between, and I kind of learned that the hard way. And it's scary to remain open all, you know, to everything. Mm -hmm. So, 
I have to thank you for doing that because you just you just made a little bit of peace happen in the world by doing that. You know, and you did you did yourself a favor too because you had some forgiveness. Because when you forgive, you know, I'm not a therapist, but I, I've just done a lot of work on myself. When you forgive, it's for you. We know that, but mm-hmm. it's one thing to get it intellectually, and then it's something else to get it down here. And so you did it. So I'll give you the yeah. thumbs up emoji. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, Jose. And before I cry on camera, thank you again for joining us. It's yeah, been a pleasure. you're so sweet. Thank you so much for your support. And please come back again, and I hope that everybody um, makes their way up to the Episcopal Actors Guild. It's 1 East 29th Street, and this room itself, you just want to be in this room. And um, it's going to be fun. Come on on out and say yes. I never expected Alice Ripley to um, sing to us. I know. Live I know. in front of what? What just? Ha- what just happened? Next time I see her, I'll just come to her with like a list of requests for songs that I want her to sing to me because that was so beautiful. And if you want to see how happy I was when she sang Jolene to us, you can watch the video version of the interview available on YouTube and on the Token Theater Friends page on American Theater uh, Magazine website. Yes. And I think, Jose, I think you should make that your ringtone. And so if, if your phone ever goes off in the theater, it'll just be Alice Ripley singing Jolene. And, you know, people can't be mad at that. Pia LuPone cannot be mad at that. My phone would never <laughs> go off in a theater. How dare you? <laughs> um, let us know if you've seen any, any of the shows we've talked about today and what you thought of them. Um, leave us a review or rating on iTunes. It helps people find us. And it helps us know that people actually love theater. So do those things. Uh, anything else you want to say to the people? We love you. Yes. And if you're going to make a quote-unquote feminist musical, hire some women. Yes. Or just don't make it. Just do something else. Don't adapt. Because Mrs. Sapphire is coming next. F*** you. F*** everybody. <laughs> oh, my God. What is wrong with you people? But remember... <laughs> theater's more fun when you take a friend. And especially if that friend's a woman. Bring some ladies. Hire some ladies. <laughs> I can't deal. Oh, my God. Thank you. (laughs) Bye.